We've been thinking about songs, which is what the book of Psalms is, and we've been trying to ask this constant question right the way through, have we got a better song? Is there a better song that we have to sing because we have faith in the God of the Bible? That's one perspective of asking that question. We could also ask the question, you might ask the question perhaps, is that song that, that I hear them singing, is that a better song? Is there a reason for me to therefore put my trust and my hope in this song or in the, the subject of the song, the God of the Bible? You might have been coming along for some time, you might have been thinking about this message of the Bible, this message of this Jesus of Nazareth. And what the Psalms remind us is that God's people have always had a better song to sing, and we continue to have a better song to sing. Because our songs are not about us, they're about the God who we worship. So that's really the starting point. This song that we're looking at, it, it has a refrain which we've just sung, but it, it it presses in on a subject which has been repeatedly, actually throughout the uh, history of humanity, a subject which has been, I, I think the, the uh, statistics are something like 90% of songs are related to the subject of love or sex. That's incredible, isn't it? 90% of our songs are reflected in that subject, our cultural songs, the songs that we sing in our wider culture. Uh, and that has tended, apparently, according to a guy called Ted Goyer, who's a his music historian, he wrote the book Love Songs, The Hidden History. He notes that love songs have played a central role to our thinking. They continue to. Our popular songs are continually shaped by this uh, idea of love or sex. I think we probably might feel as though we are, we are lurching in a particular direction where songs of love are disappearing and songs of sex are emerging and becoming kind of central, as though this is everything. We, we seem to perhaps be fearful that those songs of love, the kind of songs that we look, some of us might look back on and think that they were great, are disappearing. Let's pause. Where we are now is not an unusual place for humanity. I won't try to pronounce the name of the song, but it, because it's written by an anonymous French medieval songwriter. But the subject of his song is about a knight who finds a beautiful peasant. The knight deliberately misinterprets her saying about her lover's jealousy when in fact she had been trying to threaten the knight with her shepherd lover's vengeance. She makes clear that she is rejecting him, saying that her body cannot be bought for riches for all of the power that is displayed in front of her by this night. This is in the song. This is the subject of the song. 
The subject of the song goes on. The knight's response is to rape her. And then fulfills the standard male fantasy, which continues probably to our age, that she was pleased and glad that he had ignored her resistance. That's a medieval song. That's a song from, I think, the 11th century. That song could almost be a subject for songs today, couldn't it? Many songs today. We are not in a dramatically different place today. We are reflecting what humanity has reflected throughout time, which is a broken and a twisted relationship between love and sex. A broken relational structure. A structure which is singing about power and not true love. Now, here's the thing. If 90% of our songs are about love or its derivatives, and we're claiming that the Bible gives us the hope to sing a better song, then we had better be able to sing about a better love, hadn't we? We have got to be able to sing about a better love than the love that we seem to have paraded in front of us, a love which is shallow and transient, a love which is about games of power, a love which is about loss and rejection and unfaithfulness. That's what we see much of our cultural songs singing. We have got to be able to sing about a better love than that. This song portrays before us the hope of a better song. Let's have a look how it opens up. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. As we read it earlier, it's actually quite a hard psalm to read <laughs> because it's got this const 26 times we repeat, his love endures forever. It's hard to read because it's a bit like reading a play. I, 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 you might, some of you might be really into Shakespeare. I, I find it really, really difficult to read. But actually when it's in play form, when you see it played out in front of you, it has a whole different impact, doesn't it? Because what you're seeing, what we try to read is the script of a play. Actually, what we're trying to read here is a song. And it's got a, this repeating phrase, probably as though one group of singers would sing one part and then another group of singers would repeat with his love endures forever and there would be almost this echo going on. 26 times the psalm sings about his love endures forever. 26 times, 26 verses, 26 repeats. Each phrase is followed on by this amazing statement, His love endures forever. 
But let's just think for a minute. What is it claiming? It is claiming an eternal love. <laughs> His love endures how long? Forever. Things that carry on forever are really, really significant things. And in the ancient world particularly, things that might have the hope of continuing forever were really, really important. The idea that pharaohs might be buried so that they might be reincarnated to live forever and ever. If you go to um, Rome and go into the Forum, you can find the, uh, the remains of the temple of the Vestal Virgins. Vesta was the Roman goddess of the hearth. The hearth, I guess many of our houses even today carry this idea of the fire being central to our relationship, to our kind of, uh, our belonging. Most of our homes have furniture which is arranged around the fire. Increasingly, it's around the TV as well these days, but it kind of sits around the fire. The hearth is something which has this idea of, of togetherness and fraternity and relationship, and Vesta was the Roman goddess of the hearth. And the job of the Vestal Virgins was to keep the eternal flame burning. Do not let that flame go out. Because if that flame goes out, that eternal flame goes out, the hope of Roman fraternity and relationship right at the center of this capital was in trouble. Burning an eternal flame is an incredibly powerful symbol. It continues today, doesn't it? I can't remember the name of the eternal flame in the States that continues to burn. We have so many ideas where that eternal concept is really important. In AD 394, the Vestal Virgin's eternal flame went out. Rome seemed to have survived so long. Rome seemed to be unstoppable. Rome seemed to be eternal, and yet it ended. So many of the things that we hope for in this world, we, they seem so eternal, they seem so fixed. It will always be like this. And yet their metaphorical flames go out. And the song that we sing here is that His love endures forever. That is a dramatic statement. It is an incredible statement. And it's the foundation of the psalm. This dramatic language, the psalmist reminds us that we can sing that His love endures forever because we are giving thanks to the Lord our God. This God who we worship, He's the kind of God that can deliver eternal love. Wow. So we say, well, how, how does that work out? How can you make that claim? How can you say that this love will last forever? The first thing that we see is this. The psalmist reminds us that we sing songs to a greater God. I'm going to read the first nine verses, but I'm going to take out the repeats. 
Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, to Him who alone does great wonders, who by His understanding made the heavens, who spread out the earth upon the waters, who made the great lights, the sun to govern the day, the moon and stars to govern the night. I want you to imagine, just for a moment, that you don't live in 21st century Yorkshire. That you actually live in BC 750, 800. That you live in that ancient world where there were multiple gods. And what the psalmist is saying is, give thanks to the God of gods. Is, is the psalmist saying that there are other gods? Actually, the language is incredible. It's ingenious. It's ingenious. For the Egyptians, Ra was the god of the sun. Khonshu was the god of the moon. For the Greeks, Helios was the god of the sun. Selene was the god of the moon. And this psalm says, sing to this God who made those things. Have we got other gods? Are there greater gods? What is the definition of a greater God? The God who made. The God who created. The God who formed. The God who subdues all of those things that we consider to be ultimate gods. There is a greater living God. and He will live forever, as will His love. Is that important? To, is, the, is the only way that this speaks to us in terms of significance is if we imagine that we lived back there in the ancient world where there was multiple gods, and there is this claim that there is this one God who is the Creator God, the great God, Yahweh, the one true God, I think we live in an age where to claim absolute supremacy of the God who we worship, that there is one God, is as intolerable today as it was in the ancient world. We might not be competing with Ra and Khonshu and Helios and Selene, but we are, we are competing with every other thought, every other idea which says that you cannot be so intolerant to claim that you worship the only God. And yet that is what we claim. It is what we claim, that there is one God. Are there other ideas of God which are worshipped? Of course. There are other ideas. There are other thoughts. There are other concepts. Just as there were in the ancient world. And so when the psalmist says, you are praising and worshipping the God of gods, he was saying all of those others, they might kind of exist. They kind of exist in our thoughts in our imaginations of why the sun is in the sky, why the moon is in the sky, but don't forget 
you worship the one creator God. You worship the God who made this stuff. This is why this song is a creation psalm. Because it's reminding us that the, the idea of what God created is absolutely central to the reason why He's worth us worshipping Him. Because everything is subject to Him. Everything. That's why He is worth worshipping. Because He is the one final supreme being. The greater God. The second thing that we see, and this is really fascinating, and it's really important, I think, as well, and I'm glad we ended up at this psalm at the close, because I think it gives us the opportunity to understand how the Bible works. Because what we actually see here is that God is being praised with misplaced ideas. God is being praised with misplaced ideas. Look at what the words actually say. He spread out the earth upon the waters. The ancient world had this idea that the earth was kind of floating on this eternal sea. And that there was the sun that appeared and it rose. And the moon rose. And they, they ruled the day and they ruled the night. And the earth was flat. And the earth was on top of the water. The water was below and then there was, there was actually water behind the sun which is pretty obvious, of course there's water behind the sun, of course there is. Because if you stand on the Mediterranean banks and you look out and you see the blue sea, and then when you look up and you see that seemingly behind the sun there is blue sky, then of course there's water behind the sun, isn't there? What does that say about the Bible? This is really, really important because these are precisely the kind of ideas that allow the possibility of the Bible being completely disregarded because it is using language which we now say, well, of course the world isn't flat. Of course there isn't water behind the sun. Of course the earth doesn't float on the water because we're round. <laughs> And the sun's in the middle and we go round it. H how do we respond to that? If we think that the intention of the psalmist is to give us a scientific treatise of how the world works, we are completely missing the point. He is using a language which is able to say, as far as I understand how things work at the moment, this God is supreme. That's what it's all about. Do you know what? No matter what we discover, we can still say that. That's the point. Because the, the idea of the subject, the idea of the conversation of the psalmist is not to tell us how the world works. It's to say that God made it and it's supreme. And He's supreme. That's the point. 
from around about 1000 BC right the way through to the 19th century, bloodletting was considered to be a good thing. The medical community were convinced that the best thing to do to heal somebody was to relieve them of some of their blood. George Washington died after waking up with a throat infection. After 10 hours, he had been relieved of 3.75 liters of blood. Unfortunately, he died because of his throat infection. Somebody later wrote that he might have survived if we'd just managed to take just a little bit more blood. Wow. We find out all sorts of things, don't we? We are so utterly convinced that we know the truth in our moment in history. Utterly convinced that we know the truth in our moment. And yet time and time and time again, we find out that we didn't quite understand it quite so well as we thought we did. And we find that there is something more that we haven't understood that is absolutely critical that reverses all of our previous thoughts. And yet in all of those journeys of the human experience, we can still sing about the greater God. Nothing takes away from that. Look at how the praise is communicated. Why is this God supreme? And why do we sing repeatedly about His love? Verse 10, to Him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, to Him who divided the Red Sea asunder and brought Israel through the midst of it, but swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea, to Him who led His people through the wilderness, to Him who struck down great kings and killed mighty kings, Sion king of the Amorites and Og king of Bashan, and gave their land as an inheritance, an inheritance to His servant Israel. Why, after each of those phrases, do we sing his love endures forever. Why do we sing it? Why is the psalmist encouraging us to sing his love endures forever in the face of all of that historical event? What the psalmist is wanting to remind the people by singing it again and again and again is this. You sing that God's love endures forever because all of the events that go on around you are shaped and ordered by God for the care of His people. That's why God is worthy of being sung about an enduring love. Because when we were in captivity in Egypt, weak, powerless, empty, nothing of us, against all human possibility, we are freed and liberated against the mighty powers of the armies that oppressed, the mighty powers that maintained human child sacrifice, that hated the God who you worshipped. God delivered you from those, those horrific empires. And against all human odds, again and again and again, God's hand has been on His people 
weak, frail, vulnerable, and yet again and again and again throughout history, God's hand has been on His people. Across the world, again and again, we see God's people oppressed, and yet remarkably at the end of the oppression, what happens in country after country, God's people flourish. I was in Burma a number of years ago. The oppression of the Christian community in Burma has been horrific, and yet paradoxically, the Christian community is thriving. We see it in China. I believe we will see it in North Korea one day. Wherever we see human oppression, we see again and again in the history of the world that God's people finally thrive because because God's hand is on His people against all human expectations. The problem is that very often in the light of that resolution and recovery, we end up not behaving very well. That's a whole other story. What we do see is that God's hand is on His people. And finally, what we see is that it's not just as though He can kind of protect and then we're on our own. The final phrases are this, verse 23, He remembered us in our lowest state, freed us from our enemies. He gives, us, he gives food to every creature, give thanks to the God of heaven. Our love songs sing of emotional support, strength, compassion, but we never sing about that. Very rarely do we sing about the other person providing for us, the other person, the other, the center of our affection providing for us. Why, why don't we ever sing that? I think it's probably because we know deep down that nobody can ever ultimately promise that. We can't actually truly confidently deliver it for each other because we live in a world which is broken, which is failing, which is corrupt, where even those hopes are outside of our, of our control. And yet what the psalmist encourages us to sing is that God will ultimately provide for us and that that provision is linked to His eternal love. You say, well, oh man. When I look at the history of God's people, there are massive periods of time where there is oppression, where there is death, where there is carnage, where there is famine. How can we sing this? How can we sing this in the, in the middle of all of that stuff? How can we sing that God is the one who provides and keeps and maintains and sustains? How do we encourage people who are facing starvation through famine to sing Psalm 136? The only way I think we can encourage just to sing that in the face of worst, the worst of situations, 
is if we have an eternal dimension, which is that this world is not everything, and that the provision is truly God will provide in eternity. Because the loss that we experience in a broken world one day will be resolved. How do we know that that's the kind of God that we sing about? I think Paul put it, he, he kind of captured a lot of these thoughts in Romans chapter 8. Verse 28 says this, we know that all things, all thi we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him. Paul was writing, as far as we understand it, from prison. Just at the first hints of the overwhelming flood of persecution from the Roman Empire towards the Christian faith. And he says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him. Wow. That somehow one day, the, the suffering of Paul proclaiming the God who will keep us in spite of the blood of thousands of martyrs through Rome, will one day be resolved where we will see a Theodosius I who puts out the Vestal Virgin's eternal flame because Christianity has come to the Roman Empire. 394 years after Jesus. 360 years, maybe, after Paul wrote those words. We know that all things will work for good. Rome will not conquer faith in Jesus. Nothing between now and Jesus returning will conquer faith in Jesus in this world. Nothing. Nothing will finally kill it. We will not get to a point where our intelligence finally helps us to breathe a sigh of relief and us say, it's okay, there is no God. This is all there is. That will never happen. We will always be seeking that extra dimension for which we are made, which is the worship of the God who made us and finally displayed His love for us. Our opening song, Hosanna, a Jesus who is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, being proclaimed as the King who has come to save. And in days, it all goes horribly wrong and you would say, how can this be good, what's happening to Jesus? And yet, Paul would be able to say, because he sees it in Jesus, that all of these things were working together for good. The rejection of Jesus, the silencing of the Hosanna cries, 
the turning against him was precisely what was needed for his salvation plan to be worked out. And what do we see? We see finally portrayed before us the reason, the reason why we can sing his love endures forever because death did not defeat him. That is the reason why we can sing Psalm 136 with confidence. We can sing that his love endures forever because all the things that worked out in the life of Jesus for him to end up on a cross were absolutely in the purpose of God so that the eternal Lord could be the center of our worship and we can truly say his love for us will endure forever.